0: Yeah, no, we, uh, uh, we're happy to have you on because I heard you first on um, Radical Left Radio on what is a very good episode. Um, and then I went and binged pretty, pretty much every episode of your podcast. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that.
1: That's very nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're, um, we're just new getting off the ground, you know, but it's it's good. Like lots of people are commenting and thinking it's, it's decent, you know, which keeps you empowered to keep putting it out, I guess, you know, but yeah, I'm lucky to link up with a lot of good people. It's the It's really the the interviewees and the listeners that make my show, it's just, I just sort of add hot takes in between there, <laughs> <in> between their <laughs> yeah. interview, you know? <laughs> we, we do that, but without guests. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs>
2: it's just good. the hot hey, takes. Hey, 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 be fair, we've had, we, we, we've had, we've had a couple of guests. Hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: cool, cool. <laughs> um, Yeah, no, cause it was, I know I went into the back catalog and I was like, okay, you've sat down with the, the Connolly youth mu- movement and uh, you also had like Carl Jha on, yeah, uh, to talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah, um, which is, like, the only um, Chinese person I follow on Twitter. It's the same thing, <laughs> like, okay.
1: Yeah, which is why yeah. I kind of reached out for him to do the Hong Kong episode. But more broadly, I like, I, I like his line on Hong Kong, you know? I mean, here in the Western world, we're often uh, given a false line about what Chinese the Chinese state looks like. I mean, everybody will debate me on this, I'm sure. I had a lot of, like, positive and negative reviews from the Hong Kong episode. But we really for get sure. sold a line about Hong Kong, which I think is inherently false. I mean, you see... More from his page than any other. But you see, you know, the, the Hong Kong protest taking a very reactionary edge, which we don't really see in the West. I mean, particularly in Ireland, there's a lot of groups on the left who would support the Hong Kong democracy struggle, if you want to call it that. But I don't really hmm. I'm not sure if it's feasible for socialist revolution more broadly throughout the world. I mean I mean that's not what we're here to talk about, but certainly that's what happened in the <laughs> Hong Kong episode for me, you know. I really I really like Carl's take and it kinda of lined up with Again, when you're talking about the CYM, it lined up with their passage in the Marxist Leninist picture of history slash philosophy more broadly, you know, which is kind of what led me to do in that, you know. Good.
0: And uh, where are you based yourself?
1: I'm now in Scotland. I, I study here now. I'm a student over here um, working away in history and politics, which lines up very well, with what we're doing on Radical Reflections. <laughs> I think a lot of people in the... Oh uh, it's uh, It's been good for me to do that. But at the same time, I miss Ireland too. It's, it's brought a new perspective of what's happening in Ireland, to be honest, being in Scotland. Mm. I mean... I, I don't really like saying this too much, but we're really we're really struggling with the post post colonial status in Ireland. That's the way I that's the way I've looked at Ireland much more since moving away. Is we are behind the times. We're we're catching up now. There's a lot of good radical movements in there which are bringing us into the 21st century. But we're still behind the curve, and we've got a long way to go. I mean, you look at what's happening in Dublin. In the same week, you get things like the Irish State putting out something like the Apple tax and demanding the tax from Apple. But there's also
2: I'm I think like an actual tax on Apple's some <laughs> like, no, real, no, like real like 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 feudal shit like yeah this no. is the fucking this is like revenge for the corn laws yeah you thought
0: Macron's fuel tax was bad wait until he was like tax <laughs> yeah apples fucking hell,
1: they're taxing fruit no i meant that obviously meant the computer software company thank you for thank you for highlighting that in case people think we're actually like literally taxing fruit in the modern age though know? but in like in the same in the same week you get that coming out but you also see hundreds hundreds of people particularly in dublin homeless on the streets and it just shows you where the money's going in Ireland. It's going towards a class which is not working in the majority's interest. And the majority are suffering because of that. And moving to Scot- Scotland's not perfect either. But you see it more defined now in Ireland. We really need to start catching up. And we really need to start putting policies in place which work for and people. I guess that's kind of what made me want to start radical reflections more broadly. But we'll also talk to people like you. And more generally just be involved in the socialist cause. Which is something I'm very proud to be in. You know?
0: And welcome to your weekly Corner Spatty. Uh, it's it's a special episode because we're we're doing we're sitting down we're doing something serious and uh, kind of. Uh, but it, it's me, Kieran, uh, hosting today. and I'm here with Nick as our regular Speakey boy. Hey. Uh, unfortunately, um, Julia and Rob can't make it. Rob is still in Georgia finding Stalin too, and Julia is off in the front fighting. Um, Fighting something, presumably, or did she have the plague? I forgot what the canon is now. That why she's not here. It's bubonic plague. Okay, yeah, yeah. Plague she got
2: she got um, uh, she got dysentery on the front.
0: Charming, <laughs> great way to open a podcast. I love it. Um, right, so yes, but we do have a special guest here. We have uh, David Swanson from Radical Reflections podcast on to us uh, today to talk about Ireland, where I'm from. But I've never felt confident explaining Ireland to anyone. I've been, I've been showing the other guys in the podcast um, sad Irish rap videos. It, it, that's all I can do. Yeah, uh, that's my
2: only understanding of Ireland, and it seems quite bleak.
1: <laughs> well, I've never actually heard about that concept before. It's very interesting to come on and talk about that initially, at least. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it is just... I, I feel like there's a lot of Irish rap that just captures better in any kind of words, just the general kind of like hopelessness and sadness that our generation kind of, like, faces um, the futility of it all. But um, if I read more, I probably would be able to describe it in ways. <laughs> uh, but luckily, we have, you, we have you on here, and we have a, we have a couple of questions because we, we want to explain to our audience, who is predominantly, um, predominantly German and Dutch, I guess, continental European, let's say that, uh, what's going on in Ireland because I think a lot of people, I've encountered a couple of people who think we're still a part of the UK. Um, <laughs> like, whole cloth. <laughs> yeah, Sorry to interrupt yeah. you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, wow. I always and, find Ireland
2: kind of like that interesting thing because it's always been the, I mean, like, knowing the little bit that I do about Europe, you know, as, as you know, being born and bred in the United States. Um, yeah, I <laughs> to second Kieran on that. That there are just a lot of people that they just assume that it's part of the UK, that they don't realize that there are also two Irelands. But then, secondly, like after like the the 2008 financial crisis, that then like everyone kind of forgot that Ireland was like also a part of that like absolute mess of that, and it's just kind of been like typically, I don't know, I'll say like but brushed under the rug, but. Yeah, like there's always a sense of like, oh yeah, like, you know, you hear about so much about like especially Greece um because it was probably the most volatile in terms of politically like within the European Union. But there is like yeah, I mean Ireland got just as much like the shit end of the stick of the of the 2008 financial crisis and like, you know, all of the other what are they called pig's nations? They didn't have a very happy name. That's I thought that was pretty shit. But um it definitely, like, like that's the one that I always feel that I hear the least about. And whenever, like, you know, yeah, Kieran trying to educate us just sounds like the only solution that then Ireland has typically had is, like, oh, we're just going to do exactly what we did before 2008, and let's just hope that that, like, you know, doesn't completely fall into shambles again and just kind of have, like, a very, like, you know, nearsighted view of the future. I don't know. Like, it is it is really, like like, for me, always, like, like, been that one that then like yeah that you just you never hear about unless it has something to do with like the UK and then Ireland's like border is then like put in question I think, like, the most like n- like recent thing of Ireland reaching like international news mm mm-hmm.
1: yeah I think that's a very good take I mean for us for the Ireland it, the financial crash in Ireland was I mean it was the landmark of my the start of my political tra- tra- trajectory for, for starters
2: we I think for like most people in our generation it was I can like I I can honestly say that then like that era was also for me the thing that then really put things in perspective of like I I mean I wasn't remotely close to left wing politics then but it at least like started the gears in my head going of like hey yeah something's not right here and it really I mean yeah even like growing up in the US that was definitely like a thing of like oh, okay yeah like this is in a moment that then's important for all this
1: Yeah, yeah it really sort of confirmed to me that you, you've already kind of touched on that, but it, it really set home to me that something was fundamentally wrong in Ireland. I mean, I grew up as a teenager, kind of blissfully unaware of politics and blissfully unaware of my social conditioning for, for many reasoning reasons. But mainly because, you know, I, I came from quite a sheltered background. I came from quite a middle class background, which isn't necessarily a transgendary into Marxist politics and looking at Marx and Connolly and all these kind of people who were advocating for social change. I didn't really need to see that kind of social change, which was a privilege, which now I've become much more much more aware of and much more awakened and much more power, empowered to do something. But at that time in 2008, I watched the news regularly, When, like, as, as everybody in my generation did at 16, 17, going... You saw people around you, you saw your home, you saw your family, you saw your extended family, A, lose their jobs. But more importantly, you saw a lot more people migrating, particularly in our generation. Everybody in our generation in Ireland knows somebody who has moved. And you start to put the dots together to say, maybe something's not right here. Why are my friends having to leave at 16, 17? Why are these people who are doing really well at school? Again, I come from that kind of background. Why are people who are coming out with you know, top-level grades at school and to, uh, more broadly have the pathway to a good education and a good life in a normal kind of set of circumstances why are they moving why are they feeling like they need to move to the other side of the world why are they feeling like they need to go to australia why are they feeling like they have to go to the us or latin america even in some cases why are people doing that and it's because we had a system in ireland and we still do that valued the social class of the 1% more than the ordinary people that were that were really suffering so you look at the 2008 financial crash and not only the irish state ruling class but also the eu's role into that it really kind of opened my eyes in the fact that they valued the bankers who made the mistakes more than the ordinary people who actually suffered. And they put it this kind of line that said we need to fix this, but it's your fault. So the fact that we have too many schools, the fact that we have too many libraries, the fact that we have too many public services, the fact that we have too many public green spaces.
2: That I the, see where this is going.
1: That's the problem. <laughs> you know, that's I mean, instead of instead of expropriating people who were actually the problem they bailed them out and they put all this kind of rhetoric out at the time. This is the thing that really sticks in my head is that when Ireland won the six nations in the rugby in 2009, they put out this idea that, Hey, we're now empowering the country because we've won some sort of sporting achievement and the ruling class, put all kinds of things like, you know, it's not so bad after all, because we're winning at sport and, you know the banking structures are still alive, and it was really that <laughs> little thing that really pinned home to me. Like I'm seeing my family lose my jobs, I'm seeing my livelihood, I'm seeing my community having to move away to the other side of the world, and you're pointing out this kind of rhetoric to save yourselves rather than to tangibly change the system. And the system's only getting worse. Austerity's only getting harder. Ordinary yeah. people are still lining the streets, homeless, and it really breaks my it really breaks my heart, and it's really kind of made me the most conditioned socialist you could ever be, you know. I, I'm really proud of my community. I'm really proud the way we've dealt with it. But at the same time, we don't want this to happen again. So when the next financial crash hits, my God, are we going to be organized enough to put up a fight? Because every day since then I've said, where were we? Why did we let them do this? And why did we let them do round two unabated second time round?" you know? That's quite a lot of things yeah. to say, but it's kind of how I feel about it, you know?
2: <laughs> oh, no, no, definitely. That actually, like, leads perfectly into, like, the next thing I wanted to ask is that, like, how did this all... Um like yeah you're reflecting on then your, uh, your 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 personal um attachment to this and how it radicalized you but how did uh how, how did like 2008 affect uh Ireland's left like was there like i know that we see in um the one that then specifically comes to my mind is obviously like Podemos and Syriza in like Greece and in in, in, in Portugal and um to say that those are successes is <laughs> you know um they're not but still that there was like that that you have this political movement that then was to be fair quite radical at its time um solidify itself um I, I know that in I, I mean Syriza was a majority party well not a majority but they won parliament parliamentary elections after the the um, you know the initial brunt of austerity packages and whatnot it was like kind of uh, like the left holding its breath in you know 2011 2012 seeing what would happen I mean it it failed and it's it's been uh, you know now Greece is definitely back into the hands of the perpetrators of the financial crisis in that country but um, yeah what has it been then for 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 Ireland because like yeah like I said like um, I think for myself Included with you know a lot of other Europeans and and people in the Spheric world or whatever that Ireland is always kind of forgotten about and and like how how did the left react is it are we seeing progress is it just kind of shambles are we seeing old parties kind of do the same thing like are the youth getting involved like
0: just to clarify on that I just wanted, I wanted to know
2: like because that might lead into more what's happening
0: mod like modernly but maybe what was happening in two thousand and eight. Yeah, yeah. what's yeah. happening in Ireland with Ireland's left today is probably very different to
2: no 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 of course yeah, yeah. I mean like like I guess like contextualize a situation of like like then <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> then. Like, I mean we can like we we can go into how it bleeds into now obviously sure yeah so it's specifically 2008
1: then yeah you kind of kind of where we're at yeah
0: response to the crisis
1: yeah. yeah I don't know I mean this is something as I said I kind of touched on very briefly it's something I think about every day since because in 2008 the response was very 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 limited and I think that's being very kind and that we kind of accepted the narrative that we were the problem so you, you look at 2008 Ireland and I don't know I mean it's kind of hard to pin the blame, particularly on yourself but capitalism kind of capitalism kind of teaches you to do that you know that the, the society is individualized To so you feel like what can you do in your sphere of influence and I think the way I felt as a 16 17 year old like what can I do to help as a person transcended across the entire island i mean north and south but particularly in the south where the 26 counties got hit massively the north was kind of less affected the south was hit massively but everybody kind of had that approach you know what can i do to help myself or what can i do to help my immediate sense of influence in terms of my family structure my immediate family and because of that we really 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 and i can't stress this enough we really really missed the opportunity we really missed the boat and we really got the we got the angle wrong so you look at something like the election in two thousand and eight, and certainly post two thousand and eight, is that all the all the parties that were responsible for the for the financial crisis, and all the all the parties that were associated with the, the austerity crisis, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fail particularly, they they got a higher vote at that time than they ever have before because they put out this rhetoric that said. Very much what I'm talking about, but also that, you know, the European structure will help us if you continue to vote us, when actually we all missed the boat and said the European structure was the problem. The the European Union and their role in this was the problem, but more importantly, the way the the top 1% in Ireland really abated the crisis and really, you know, aided that on taking on the IMF, letting the European Central Bank rule in Ireland. And we reached the situation then that, yeah, as I say, we really, really, really did miss the boat. But more broadly, even the parties that were supposed to be left at that time, if you look at Sinn Féin, there's a perfect example, in 2008, they then started to come out with this rhetoric that we need to take some sort of Keynesian, liberal kind of road as well. So they started... I mean, you could argue they were a leftwards party in the in the 80s and the early 90s. This In this modern age, they are nothing but a neoliberal agenda themselves. I mean, they... Like you look at the European referendum in Ireland, they, voted for, they advocated for a Remain vote, which angered a lot of leftists and a lot of Republican grassroots, having seen this in 2008. So the immediate reaction to the 2008 financial crisis, while everything was basically falling apart, it was crumbling at the seams, the, the attitude of everybody was, how can I help as an individual? But more importantly, it was like, we need to trust the people that they will make they will not make the same mistake again, which is the biggest mistake of our time. I think that's... Now it's kind of leading into our generation. We'll touch on that later on, but we're yeah, yeah. starting to lose touch in them, starting to lose faith in them more broadly because of that. But yeah, two thousand and eight will remain scarred in my memory for all the wrong reasons, and I really hope we don't make the same mistakes again. You know.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think like to right. the the um, like just kind of t- hitting on the point of then like when you look at then the the structures of the European Union and what that means, especially for a smaller country and a, a much smaller economy than the countries that then like um, control it, which I think a lot of, you know, when you tell like people who are very much like European federalists, they're like, what, what do you mean that there's a, there's an improper balance of power or an improper balance of economic power, especially within that, that that's all like, I, I, I always feel that that's kind of like, a, a um, and I, I mean, you see this now with, with, um, Again, not even just with 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 the countries affected by the financial crisis, but within like the dialogue that then kind of comes into like questioning Europe. That's always like the kind of thing that you're not supposed to ever do once you've been admitted into the into the uh, uh, the European Union. And it's like absolutely amazing how then people just can convince themselves that it's like that this this structure that then was pretty much for France and Germany to to rule over. I mean, what it was it was it was the European Union starts as like a in. Coal and, steel. coal and steel like coalition between between you know the biggest industries of the two largest economies in Europe it's already Im- imbalanced and like you mentioned the IMF and the you know the ECB and whatnot and when you when when you put your currency into that it's it's not gonna work out if you're if you're a, a you know a smaller country that then has a far more underdeveloped economy than than you know, I, I'm just going to go off France and Germany because they're they're just the the two big ones, and it's it's really yes. kind, of, and it's really always kind of disheartening that then like that that's always such a hard thing I think to like get across and over even to like some like left wing spaces here in Germany that. Um, the European Union is at, like, the heart of a lot of problems of neoliberalism. And it really, like, like you don't have to be, like, you know, completely anti-EU. And I think that it's shown, like, uh, there have been voices like, you know, like Yanis Valfakis and, like, his, his group and whatnot that have at least, like, brought to the thing of, like, you know, we're in this, it's kind of like we have to work with it. I mean, he may be a little bit too pro-EU sometimes, in my opinion, but nonetheless, like, there is... There is at least like the general acceptance that, like, it's okay to criticize the EU and it's okay to recognize the EU is a neoliberal mechanism. So. Like, why are we so stuck on them pretending that then this is, like, some, like, magical grace from God that then is going to save us? <laughs> like, it's, it's, a, like it, it, it's really, like, maybe it's just, like, German mindset because they don't feel the brunt of it. But I'm always just so amazed about, like, how just, like, distant that is in, like, people's eyes of, like, how you cannot, cri- like, critique the EU in a lot of senses. And 2008 is, like, that, like, point that you should look at and be, like, mm. yeah, this happens on an individual nation base, but this structure made it way worse for them.
1: Yeah, I think touching on that, I think that that's a lot of good points there. I think like you got to understand sometimes that the European Union was kind of an advancement of Woodrow Wilson's kind of liberal idea in the in the US. Mm-hmm. And but more importantly, it was kind of their way of trying to, I mean, it's not obviously controlled by the US dollar, but it very much fits into this mindset that said after post-World War II kind of time. Hey, the
2: Bretton Woods agreement, baby, it was controlled by the US dollar.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it kind of fits into this worldview that says there are now opportunity for us to build a great nation state. That's kind of what the European Union project is all about, which is kind of going under the water, particularly from the liberals, particularly in Ireland, the liberal left, but more broadly, the European liberal left view it as some sort of I don't know some sort of peace and democracy project when actually what's going on there is a project Europe more broadly under capitalism under a capitalist state that is trying to mm. basically subjugate as you've already touched upon the smaller nations in Europe to build a, a one nation project and to join that project as Ireland did you sell your sovereignty for that and we've paid the price of that a million times I mean you look at the Lisbon Treaty where they you know Europe single-handedly wanted to force more powers onto Ireland from the European central bank and from the the European hub more broadly and we rejected that twice but they forced it on us three times and said we'll cut your funding if you don't take it the third time so we were kind of forced upon Mm. that and from that you kind of reach the stage where you start to realize that I mean you've even got stuff like the the PESCO project they're building their own European army now this is a this is a project of imperialism this is not some sort of liberal peace and democracy protest or sorry progress it is literally an imperialist nation state that is trying to basically you take cheap labor across europe and mm-hmm. build stronger nations for that i mean you look at all the german cars that were coming to ireland at the time and we were buying things that we couldn't afford which is why we mm-hmm. we crashed but germany were profiting france were profiting from that i mean this is not to get into some sort of nationalist you know nationalist hysteria but not na- you know germany the german and french capitalist economies were profiting off the fact that we couldn't afford it but they didn't say mm-hmm. anything even though that we could and then the country collapsed because of that and it begins to really push you to a point that says the European Union is not a project that will help us. And another Europe is possible, but a Euro- another European Union is not. And Ireland's place in the EU is not a friendly one. It's not a happy one. And for the social eman- emancipation of the working class and to really liberate the proletariat from a socially despotic ruling class, we need to be out of that project and keep the wealth in our own country and distribute the profits that come from our labour Back into the Irish working class and build towards a socialist Ireland, and more broadly from that, spark a revolution that can start a socialist Europe more broadly. I hope that kind of makes sense. I don't know. Sometimes. No, no,
0: absolutely. That's that's. that's I, do, I, I I do want to push back a little bit and say sure. that you
1: know Germany
0: has gold, so everything's fine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was actually about to. I was actually about to ask. How is it in the sense of like with with Ireland and that? Because like the last few times that I've been to Greece has been that there's just like like leaders and media marks and stuff like that, just popping up like where they don't need to be. And, um, I don't know how well they do. I mean, like to be fair, like the entire port of Thessaloniki was just like bought by Germany. They were kind of like, they, they weren't, no one else was really allowed to bid on it. Um, You know, there's, there's there's all this, like, sense of, like, very clear influence of Germany that then is taken over there. Like, how has that then been, like, has Ireland also had a similar thing? Or is it, from what Kieran was telling me, it's very much, from what it seems like, a lot of, like, private, like, I think, like, American companies you were saying, right? Who've I feel, yeah, down. my my... My take on it would be,
0: and David, correct me if you feel like I'm, I'm diverging a bit. Like we do have Lidl and stuff, and there's like a weird kind of a, a racism scandal actually going around uh, because Lidl had a mixed race couple in one of their promos, and the uh, the Irish chuds kind of came out uh, in response to that. But the um, my 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 take would be that Ireland is kind of functioning as the European Union's port for American investment um that the ground zero the landing spot for a lot of that because i do think the companies that are definitely touted as being like the job makers in ireland are often american companies uh usually in the software space even though they don't really make an awful lot of jobs compared to homegrown industry um i'm not seeing a lot of german influence compared to other countries i would say but there has been There has been some like pan-European stuff. We have Lidl, we have Aldi, we have Spire, which is Dutch. Um, Yeah, that would be my kind of take on that.
1: Yeah, to be honest, I'd pretty much like to echo all of that. I think we have had a lot of that kind of stuff. And I think more broadly, yeah, we have all... It's more prevalent in the 26 counties than it is up north in the 6. Like, the, the Aldis and the Lidls are everywhere in the south. And I think you're really starting to see in Ireland now that we are becoming... Just another European profit, uh, another European profit mechanism where it not you know—the local industries don't matter, mm. the local people don't matter. The, you know, all the all the potential that is there for the working class people and working people more broadly to, you know, put some put some stamp of originality on things—all the things that socialism would bring—you you, you, you subjugate that and you, you you put that to the side for the sake of European profits like Aldi and Little. But yeah, touching what you said about the American stuff. It's so true. We are, we are now not just American, but certainly European as well. We are now just the, we are, we are under the thumb of that very much. So we've cut the corporation tax again last year. And, you know, big, big, massive multinational companies, we, we are the brunt of their this despotism, both in terms of working conditions, in terms of the profit and where the money goes. All the wealth that's in Ireland is being lifted out of Ireland and taken overseas, whether that's into Europe or whether that's into the US. I touched upon the You know the Apple scandal there earlier on, like they are literally keeping all the profits for themselves. I don't even know how to say this without getting you know properly angry and properly swearing about it, but you see so many people going in and working in apple in Ireland, and they're 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 working hard and they're creating a lot of wealth in that industry, and to see everything that they have being bought out and sold off to go elsewhere to go to the other side of the world more broadly. It's a shame, you know. We 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 have the potential in Ireland. We we've always had potential down the years to really make a a nation state that is worthy of our people, and more importantly, worthy of the working class who can who make all the wealth in that country. And that isn't the case under the European Union or or in the the world capitalist system more broadly. And breaking that, well, that's the problem, isn't it? We don't really we're working hard towards it. Sometimes we get that wrong, but we've just got to keep trying. You know, we've got to really push out the the line that says we need to remember that everything we're making is, is not, is not at the benefit of the Irish people and not at the benefit of the Irish working class. And that's something which I tell everybody on a daily basis. And it's what I'm striving for and working for on a daily basis,
2: you know? Yeah. I think that that's also like a good, um, I, I like, I think that it's it like in Germany, you can see that even like in a super localized level in the East, it's the exact same thing. I know that a lot of Germans like to like pretend that everything is, you know, going great since the fall of the wall, But um, yeah, there's not one single like top 500 company in Germany that then is from the East. They're all in the West. They then build up, you know, industry in the East and it all gets um, sent back even within its own country. Like the States of the East are significantly poorer, not because they were socialist, but because they, um, you know, like capitalism just kind of did its own thing. And like people wonder like, Oh, why are the people in the East getting so fucking pissed? Um, And it's, because of capitalism, and I think it's—I mean, like to be fair, and this kind of like leads on to then like the next thing is that Germany's um, old left parties have had no answer for this locally on that on 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 like in in Leipzig and in Dresden and like all these cities. And, and to be fair, like Leipzig is more left-wing than than probably the other places. Like the left is still, I think, the largest party there. But, um, like, yeah, the SPD has had no stronghold really kind of in any of these places. And to be fair, the SPD as a whole of a party in Germany is just their popularity is is slipping, you know, to the point of how unpopular it was when, like, I think their, their approval rating is as low as it was when, like, Engels was a member of the party. So... <laughs> Yeah. So I guess, like, in the sense of, like, how is that then on, uh, like, I mean, one of the big players, as you mentioned earlier, of, of in like the 80s and 90s was Sinn Fein. Um, has Sinn Fein been at all useful since 2008? And you, br- you briefly mentioned that they're, you know, like, like offering, like, you know, kind of like just run of the mill Keynesian solutions that are, you know, pretty garbage if you just like start peeling them back because they are pro austerity most of the time um but is there like has there been any glimmer of hope since then really for them or they kind of doing the whole spd route where they're just like yeah everything's fine um we're gonna keep doing this like i mean i don't know how popular Sinn Féin is to begin with i'm not very uh uh, i'm not like here on where i know a lot about ireland but yeah i guess that that's just kind of like the uh
0: I don't know a lot about Ireland. This is why we have David on. No, okay, <laughs> true, yeah. I just grew up there and paid attention to knowing.
2: Hell yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, just, again, just just before we take that question, just touching on your last point, you talk about Leipzig or sorry, talk about the east of Germany and how it's being left yeah. behind. That's happening under in Ireland under the European um, project as well. I mean, you look at where yeah. they're investing. They're investing in Dublin and Galway. And the Midlands is being completely left behind. Cork, if you're kind, but you know the middle of Ireland is, yeah. is, is is desperate. It's being left behind. It's it's still. You go there and you think you're in the 1940s, and I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. You go there and you you literally think that you've been, you know, you're, you're still in the Second World War effort. It's like stepping into a time machine. But now coming to your question, oh, it's a difficult one to answer. This really because I, I'm not really a man who. You might be able to tell from the way I'm talking. I'm not particularly <laughs> invested in electoral politics, if I'm honest. But, but um,
2: okay, yeah, fair. The,
1: the, the, Shin, the Sinn Fein kind of line is is something we really need to put out here. So, what's the problem with Sinn Fein more broadly? Is the fact that they are detached from all the people who support them, and they are straddling a line which wants to create new votes. Now, how do you get new votes? Well, you you basically you appeal to you appeal to a different class bracket. So, traditionally, in the 80s and the 90s. Really during during the war, during the Civil War, I mean people like to call it the Troubles, it's an Irish Civil War. They peddled and they didn't peddle. They they worked with and they worked for the working class in Ireland. I mean, certainly the Republican movement, but certainly they had a lot of class rhetoric in there, which was important and it was valid, and it was what made people excited about Sinn Fein. It's what people wanted. It's 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 why it's why the war went on so long, if I'm really honest, because they could see the vision that they were striving for, and they could see that the the vision that was being pumped out by the Sinn Féin electoral message, but more broadly because they were working towards that as well, was something that could really empower them. The Irish Socialist Republic. It's the Workers' Republic that we continue to strive for on the left. It's the Workers' Republic that I continue to advocate on a daily basis. But what's happening now is since the ceasefire, since the end of the war, since 1998, they have tried to... They they have moved into the electoral game fully. Obviously, there's no war anymore. We're, we're thankful of that to a degree. We don't want to see people dying on the streets and we don't want to see people giving up their lives for a cause which potentially is not needed. I mean, we'll come to that potentially in the rest of the episode. But what's happening now with Sinn Féin is because they're doing that, they want to basically become the largest party in Ireland. And to do that, they need to move into an area which says we need to attract more voters than those who were supporting us during the war. And because of that, they're putting out new lines, they're putting out new messages, and they're putting out new policies which do not empower the working class class population and more broadly works against them. So you look at stuff like remaining in the European Union, you look at accepting a welfare cuts package from Westminster. And you look at their idea on how the financial system would work, and it, again, it's it's talking about cutting the corporation tax, it's looking at implementing the bedroom tax in Ireland. It's basically a Keynesian road, and that's being kind. It's more of a neoliberal road. It's certainly, a, they're moving far to the right. Their new leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, and the leader in the North, Michelle O'Neill, has no interest in working people. They're interested in Irish independence alone. And that's not a bad thing, but because they're not interested in the working class method of that, all that's going to happen is the age old, the age old claim and the age old prophecy of James Connolly that if you do not work towards the socialist republic, then the letterheads that are going out to evict you from your homes will have the Irish shamrock on them rather than the British crown. And that's the kind of model they're now working with. They now mm. fully accept the British crown. I mean, you can, you can argue that they don't, and all the rhetoric they don't, but they you know they meet with them on a regular basis. They meet with the people who are responsible for the austerity packages in Britain. They, you know, they, they don't take their seats in Westminster, but they're actively involved in Westminster and they go to Westminster all the time. That's a line they will never push out, but it's true if you just delve in below the surfaces. And they're very good. They're now very good at straddling that old liberal line that says, this is one thing and this is the one thing we support. So you look at the welfare cuts package I was just talking about. All the rhetoric coming out before that election was we didn't support the welfare packages. That came from Britain. When actually... They had a single. They had. They had the single-handed biggest approach in that to accept that deal because because of their status now and they have a lot of support in Ireland in the, in the electoral game. And if their MPs, their TDs, and their elected officials were to reject that, that wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have come to Ireland. So the fact that they are now putting out these lines but doing the exact opposite in Parliament is this classic liberal line. that's very good at putting out the right kind of lines of communication but they're not actually very good in practice because they're straddling the electoral game that says, we're if you vote for us, we will do something. But once they get into office and once they have their jobs and once they have their comfortable seats in parliament, it doesn't matter because they got what they needed in the first place. Do you get what I'm trying to say? It's very, very yeah. dangerous. It's a very dangerous road. And it's one that concerns me. And it's certainly now starting mm-hmm. to hit home along my generation, as we've touched upon earlier on, who are seeing the subsequent effects of that in Ireland, particularly in the 26. well, more broadly in the North, because they have more power in the North. But they're seeing a line now that says... You are saying one thing and doing another. And more broadly, you have sold yourself out and you've unattached yourself from the community that you were striving to fight for and with during the eighties and nineties. And we're looking for alternatives now. What those alternatives are, well, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But at the minute, I would argue that Sinn Fein's influence is unless it tangibly starts moving towards the left and starts really putting empowering working people again in the process in their policy manifestos and their electoral pledges then they're going to become an irrelevant source and they're just going to become the classic you know the classic vanguard the classic revolutionary vanguard that got swallowed up by the system took their money and sat quietly while the money was pummeling in you know i think that's the line i would now take i mean it's happening all over the world but it's certainly Mm -hmm. happening to sinn fein in ireland where are sinn fein going in a backwards direction that's my you know two cents on that i guess
2: damn social democrats again (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a I think that's a fair point to take because like um, if we if we kind of like glance at Ireland from an electoral perspective, then uh, someone from Germany or Poland or wherever in Europe might say, "Oh, look, they're a member of um, United Europe, United European Left, and there are some decent parties in there. They're pushing the line, um, but Sinn Féin is not one of them. Um, so it, it's worth to take that into account." that, like, yeah, they might be listed on a European level as the far-left party of Ireland,
2: but there there might be uh, better options on the table. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess, like, kind of going into, like, that big old question, like, are there... Uh, like, what, what, what are, then, the potential other options, then, for Ireland? I mean, like, Kieran mentioned uh, just to me, like, before this episode that there's this... Um, I guess you can talk about it, on because you know more about it than I do. Yeah, a little bit. So this is kind of staying in the field of electoralism,
0: which I know isn't everything, but it is still something, um, which would be, there's this new party called Rise, um, which literally launched like five seconds before we sat down to record this. Um, and it's, it's Paul Murphy's, uh, new party. He, he split from the socialist party, um, which, if anyone doesn't know Paul Murphy, he's made his name by being heavily involved in the water charges protests, uh, which was putting in meters in people's homes to like measure people's water output and start charging for it. Um, so he got his name that way, and what I'm probably interested in in Rise is that they say they're, while they're hoping to be ideologically pure within themselves as a party, as a unit they are also hoping to be constructive with other forces like find forces within the greens they can agree with and find forces within Sinn Féin that we can agree with because one of the little issues that I've noticed with Sinn Féin is because sometimes they do kind of like campaign left but then govern right. There are people who believe what they're pitching. They believe the the snake oil salesman and there's The Sinn Féin Youth Wing, for example, is probably a lot further to the left than the actual, like, and Rise is saying, we can maybe work with them.
2: That's a pretty Um, typical trend, though, in, like, most countries, though, isn't it? Like, I know that the youths of of the SPD have, like, actual Marxists in their organization. And it's, like, pretty shit that then, like, uh, in, like, 10 years, these people are going to, like, if they want to become members of the actual party, they have to, like, give up. Like mm. Olaf Scholz, the like, uh, uh, what's he called? Like the, I think he's like the mayor of Hamburg or whatever. who's now I think he, I forget what his position in Merkel's cabinet is. Um, he was a Leninist like 20 years ago <laughs> and now look at him. He's a fucking monster who sides with the fucking cops on everything and whatnot. So. Well,
0: we talked about this recently with the, like the youth wing of the greens in Austria were kicked out for being too radical for and they being too cool. <laughs> And then merged with the Communist Party of Austria to make Communist Party of Austria Plus, Mm. which is a great
1: name. (laughs) What a name, yeah.
0: (laughs) What a name.
1: But I I guess taking your question more broadly Mm. about, I, I don't know, there's a lot of things to dissect there. First off, I'd like to just take the latter part of that question that says... If you mm-hmm. want to assimilate into electoral game, you have to give yourself up to a certain degree. Uh, yeah. It's what you're talking about here when you, you're talking about... Literally, a Leninist is now siding with the cops in Germany. There's a classic example of someone who is... Oh, I don't want to be too unkind, because you have to be a realist as well. You have to you have to be somewhat realistic and say that...
2: He's not a Leninist anymore, though, by the way. He gave that up when he, yeah, really, yeah, quote-unquote, yeah, yeah. grew up yeah. Yeah, and this, wanted, a, wanted a permanent position in the SPD.
1: That's my point. As I say, I want to be realistic <laughs> about it, but people sell themselves out for... A bit of coin and a bit of social security, which everybody needs. Social security. That's you know, I'm not coming here saying that we should all be living in the woods and you know, advocating for a Leninist revolution with you know, no kind of social security whatsoever. But a yeah. uh,
2: Marxist Leninist and prim get it right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably fair. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is sad, and it really shows how the electoral game more broadly. But coming back to the question at hand about the Irish left and the Irish electoral electoral left, I guess more broadly is. You take something like Rice, and this might be not a controversial opinion. I don't know, but it's certainly the way I view things. It's certainly the way a lot of my comrades view Let's things.
2: Let's get know. messy. <laughs> yes, we want controversial <laughs> opinion.
1: <laughs> it is a bit. It, potentially it is. I'm not sure. Actually, I Actually, don't think it really is. But, yeah, me and my com- hmm. a lot of my comrades and a lot of people I work with and a lot of people I associate, a lot of people I bring on the podcast at Radical Reflections would argue rise in these small subsects of electoral parties are exactly what is wrong with Ireland. In that instead of trying to empower yourself to work towards a collective front of activists, they're becoming much more individualized in their scope. They're becoming much more interested in their their own personalities and their own egos, which is exactly when I come back to what we were talking about earlier on in terms of the individual individualizing of two thousand and eight. That's what's happening here again more broadly. I mean You have people who think we shouldn't be working with other leftists and we shouldn't be working with the collective movement more broadly. We need to put out a line that's right for us. But by doing that, by saying, by splitting from all these parties and by creating their own little micro sections, they are literally isolating themselves from the movement that they want to create. So the example I always give to this, and it's something that I say to people regularly is. How many working class people in Ireland do you think really give a fuck about like historical things like the new economic policy of the Soviet Union or the state collectivization that comes from that? I mean, these things, these these correct, these correct, theoretical points are important and they're good for a Marxist in terms of their development. But if you're splitting with people on little micro questions like this, then you're not strengthening the class. You're weakening the class. And you see this over 10, 20, maybe even 30 years in Ireland. We've had endless TDs, endless councillors and endless elected officials who claim to be leftists and potentially are leftists but they go into an electoral road and they get a lot of state funding they get a lot of they get a lot of support from their communities they get a lot of uh, money from the state to keep their parties running and because of that the class is now getting weaker rather than stronger because of that i mean what we need to be doing is we need to be building a collective front of activists now there are good elect- electoral Propositions. I am not against elections. I need to put that out right now. Elections, elections are a tactic just as much as anything else is in the left. So something like the Civil War, something like force, something like a general strike, all these things are tactics. They are not principles. So you look at something like everybody advocated for the repeal the 8th referendum because that's a tactic which really benefited our class. But how did that happen? That happened through collective action, through collective picketing, through collective work, through the trade union movement to literally force these people in the Irish state to give us that referendum. And look at the success that's come off the back of that. And if we continue to split up the electoral organisations into little organisations that will not work with other people, then what's the point? Because you're just literally letting the capitalist state run your affairs and letting them do their job for you, splitting us up as a left. So what we need to be doing instead, and this is the thing I advocate on a daily basis, is we need to be building the union movement. If we spent just as much time organising people into Mm. unions and using our collective funding to build the collective movement on the ground rather than taking the state's money and playing the state's game at electoral games, we could be building something massive in Ireland. We could be building something huge in Ireland because the Irish state is as weak as it's ever been. We've never had a weak Catholic Church. We've never had a weak Irish state. We've never had the position where... We can see the conditions of inequality rising to such a point that something could tangibly happen in Ireland that is actually beneficial for ordinary people, built off our own backs. We have the social crisis, and I don't mean that as like we need the social crisis to build, and we don't want social crisis. But the conditions are rising there for something in Ireland, which is, which which could which could lead to something extraordinary. But instead of instead we're focusing on these little games about splitting up and splitting up the movement and splitting into these microsects, and it's not helpful because at the end of the day. It's not helping anybody. We need to be empowering the class, rather than working on individual personalities about whether you're a Trotskyist or a Stalinist, and we'll split into little microsets and talk about this. Because that doesn't empower working people. And working people don't care if you're a... Well, they do in theory, potentially, but they don't really care if you're a Trotskyist or a Stalinist or what tendency you come from. If you're going to put more money in their pockets and you're going to give them more ownership of the wealth that they create, then you can be whatever tendency you want to identify as because you're working for the class in Ireland and working for the strengthening of our class that we can take ownership of this country. We can take ownership of the industries and we can take ownership of all the wealth we create and actually make that better for people. And instead instead of spilling into these microsects, it's time to collectively organise to work towards that. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, that's just kind of our take. It's something <laughs> I mean, that we work I- towards and it's something I'm very proud to say on the air, you know?
2: I don't know about Kieran, but I'm uh I I agree. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it, <laughs> and I tried so hard not to interrupt and make a joke about Trotskyists. So I'm, <laughs> I'm a good boy right now. Oh, that, you did well. This you conversa- did well. <laughs> uh, hang on, I
0: have to interrupt your conversation about not splitting the left with this sick dig I have against Trotskyists. Okay, yeah, I like it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, no, not to be too sectarian, yeah, no, but yeah, I do. I do like it all
0: the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, like it is something I agree with, and like in general, I. I I kind of abhor like I, I I do kind of hate the sectarianism as well because I think there's one like other level overlooked with um sectarian fighting, which is ignoring people who arrive at what we would call left positions or socialist positions through lived experience rather yeah. than any kind of theory. Well, um people who kinda of come up to these ideas just by like sit with their mates being like Oh man, democracy is cool. Why isn't it in the workplace? <laughs> <laughs> like, literally, but like, I didn't read any books. I don't know who Trotsky is from Adam, but like, it, it doesn't honestly really make a fucking difference. In rug. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, no, no, of course not. You touch on something really poignantly there, and that like, leftist positions are nothing without practice. I mean, you can have all the correct positions that you want, you can advocate for everything you want, but unless you're actually working towards it, What's the point? I mean, a position is just that. It's a position. What happens and how you create this collective front, Talking, coming back to what we were talking about, it's through action. I mean, leftist unity is very hard to build. We know that through mm-hmm. history. We know that through current conditions. And no one no one is stupid enough to realize that. There are divisions on the left and there are divisions in practice. But if we collectively act on something that is really important for the class on a single issue, so take something like housing. We're talking about the homeless crisis earlier on. Everybody wants a better housing system. So if we all collectively work towards that single issue, you're creating gains, you're creating links, you're creating momentum amongst everybody and you can tangibly start to work there. I mean, that's that. I mean, nobody is stupid enough to realise that a communist revolution or a, a leftist revolution more broadly or just tangibly empowering working people, you need collective action for that and everybody's got, as I say, everybody's got a different position on this but if we were to collectively work towards some kind of single issue... Like housing, like education, uh, like all these single issues. And we can tangibly empower ordinary people off the back of that, no matter what your tenancy is. And we're all working towards the mm. same goal at the end of the day. And something that's something, something that we sometimes need to remember that, you know? I mean, we're very good at arguing with each other, but we need to be working with each other to actually get any kind of tangible gain, you know?
2: Yeah. No, like, I, I mean, like that. Oh, sorry, Karen, you can go. Yeah,
0: sorry. I was like, housing does feel like the very obvious one for the Irish context because it has gotten ridiculous going back to what you were saying just at the very beginning of this conversation of like everyone has left like i left largely because i couldn't afford to like live on my own um in ireland and i was trying to live in dublin but like that's the only place i could get work so the only option was to eventually leave and this is a situation for a lot of people and it does kind of feel like I have seen a lot of different housing actions in Ireland. I am wondering there needs to be maybe something broader. I I don't know exactly, but that that is definitely ha- the um, that's definitely the key one. I think a lot of people in continental Europe are very surprised when I tell this. Even people here who are like active on the left and try to pay attention to this stuff that Dublin is now the most expensive city in the European Union to rent in. Um, London beats us in prices, but not in per square meter. I think that's like the slight difference there. But we we recently beat, beat Paris, hooray!
2: <laughs> Isn't it also calculated too by uh, in relation to like the uh, what's it called? Fuck, what's the economics term? Not the basket of goods, but you're like yeah, just like general living standard too. I think also has to go into it. So like oh yeah, like wages and wages in in the UK I think are slightly higher than in. Uh, I, it, it wages no, it's,
0: in, in, it's higher in purchasing power. It's lower in raw amount. Ireland, you'd actually get like what would look like a high wage, but it gets you that all. Yeah. I okay.
1: Mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, fun. just touching on all that, it's a good point you're bringing out here, in that in Ireland, our minimum wage. I mean, uh, the social democratic countries have a lot of ideological faults. We know that, but in in Scandinavia, well, our our Irish na- national living wage is lower than theirs. But also our rents are are, are almost twenty percent higher than that. So yeah. you, you have a you have a situation where our national living wage is so low, but the rent and the the basic living cost is is sky high, and you have to kind of wonder why is that? I mean, you can pin all you want on austerity, and you can pin all European austerity, but the, you know the national ruling classes have a big part to play in that, and it's it brings me back to this sort of classic example of, and it is true in some cases that the enemy will arrive by boat. We've seen that through history in terms of, you know, British ruling class oppression. But they, we have to remember as well that there's a class divide in Ireland that lets this happen mm. on a regular basis. So the, the enemy also arrives by limousine. And that's something that the Irish population and even the Irish left at times is sometimes very hot, sometimes likes to forget, you know, that we have a national ruling class in the south of Ireland post-independence, for want of a better word, 1921 and certainly 1948 when it became a republic. That is that has now got this attitude to say, okay, well, it's our turn now. We've had a subjugation for many years under British and foreign imperialism, and now it's our chance to rule. And that's the kind of narrative we need to break so we can break the conditions that have such a low national living wage and such a high rental cost and all the other social factors that are causing people like Kieran and me to leave the country because we can't afford to live there. You know, it, it, it breaks my heart. And you read through radical history in Ireland and you, you realise it doesn't have to be this way. You know, I, you're almost taught, it's another good point to provide this, in the Ireland schooling system, you're almost taught that we're too stupid to be governed and we're too stupid to really know how to mm. do things because we've needed Britain and all, we've needed Europe. And that comes into the European Union argument. You know, we need the European Union because they give us so much. We could do all of that ourselves. And the radical history that is not taught in schools for a reason teaches you that. The Irish working class has very much got the potential. I mean, you look at the capitalism now. We have the most... the most um technologically developed working class that we've ever had. Because we need it, because it's so competitive. So that working class could take all the ownership of that. No questions asked. Tomorrow, if we worked, I mean, it's not as simple as that, but we could we could literally own all the wealth we have in the morning and, dep- and get rid of these social conditions that are causing my generation, Ciarán's generation, and my parents' generation, to some degree, to leave this country and certainly become to hate Ireland. Because we shouldn't hate Ireland. There's so much to love about Ireland. It's natural beauty, it's natural resources, it's economic wealth, but it's being disproportionately redistributed to a national ruling class as i talk about the limousine but also a, a national ruling or sorry a foreign ruling class as well and those are the conditions we need to break on a daily basis it's what we strive to do you know
2: yeah i guess that that goes perfectly into like the uh, this is like the last actual question i have we can still keep talking afterwards after it um is that um Because this this perfectly, um, I I had, I I was confronted with this same question, I I just finished actually like my my thesis at university, and I did about if like the Marshall Plan in Greece is imperialism was more or less the question. And um, a lot of the stuff that, that you mentioned with Ireland just now echoed exactly what my research was on and so like kind of like the 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 big question that i always had kind of going in the back of my head and which is still kind of going on when you see these these politics happen within like the the peripheral nations of europe if you want to call them or not um is um like how dude like the current state of ireland like is that is it fair to then you know like i mean it is through a lens of colonialism that, that we're looking at it however uh, you know, colonialism and imperialism, and like like this type of rule, like as you mentioned too, like the enemy r- arrives by limousine, and the enemy will, you know, uh, the le- your letterhead evicting you out of your house will have the shamrock on it. Um, how have then these structures of colonialism in Ireland, or it, I guess, is it even fair to then say that these structures of colonialism still, or they have like like have they developed um, into a much more? I mean, the world's more complex, obviously, but how how have these like like complexities? And 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 uh, uh, um, what's the word? What's the what's the uh, the nice Marxist word that they always use? The contradictions of capitalism and imperialism, like how, how are those being reflected then now in I guess let's say, you know, the twenty tens of Ireland? Because we like to always on the left look at imperialism and and colonialism as a very cut and dry, very simple thing to look at, but the reality of it is 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 not that. If you want to find a cut and dry example of colonialism that exists like that, You're probably not going to find one throughout history because there is a lot of working within, you know, preparing a class within that country to then rule over themselves. And, and yeah, I mean, just kind of like, like what is that situation for Ireland currently right now?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I guess the problem is that we have, the structures we have are kind of threefold. One is the fact that we never actually got rid of British imperialism more broadly. We Mm -hmm. never got full independence. I mean the Irish free state was very much economically supported and, militarily supported by britain so you look at the irish history and you look at the the you know the the left wing of the the republican movement the left wing of the ira movement and the marxist movement more broadly didn't want to accept the irish free state to start with and they fought against them and the free state with its military backing from british imperialism and more broadly their we talked about earlier their supposed right to rule won through and because of that We've had the the country partitioned, and because of that, British imperialism and now a new factor of all this, is European imperialism, continues to support the island financially. Which is a new way of doing war. It's a new way of doing colonialism. You don't send in troops anymore because it sends in an international uproar, and you start to really, you know, get that kind of support for military fervor on a revolutionary end worldwide. They now do it financially, and they now do it covertly. So you see British troops still landing in Shannon you still see i you know us marines landing and landing in shannon airport and all of that kind of you know it's supported financially to do that so the reason why colonialism or subcolonial status in Ireland still exists is because it's profitable to do that and that comes back to a capitalist narrative more broadly that if you if, if you're willing to pay for something you'll get the resources that you you want for that so the americans and europeans and and also the european union but also the United Nations too, we go on peacekeeping, I use that quote-unquote, peacekeeping operations in Chad and Sierra Leone and African nations, Lebanon. We do all that Mm. for profitable venture. We send Irish troops to do European ventures, which are not in the interest of Irish people, but more broadly are not in the interest of the Irish working class because these ventures are for promoting neoliberal austerity in these countries, these so-called developing countries throughout the world, which also have a lot of wealth and a lot lot, lot of resources in them, which is why the European Union and the United Nations want them more broadly. So we do all those things and we get profitable return for that, I guess. But at the same time, we could be just building a, a better Ireland for Irish people and the Irish working class and working towards socialist revolution more broadly. So to answer your question, to summarise that, I guess we have never got rid of the colonial structures because it's profitable, but now we have so many different subsects of that. Now that it's almost it's almost so covert you don't even know what's going on. So like, you, you yeah. talk to someone in the Irish in the street, they have no idea that there's a European army being built. They have no idea that Ireland's a part of that. They have really no idea that the Ireland take part in UN missions apart from people who are in the defence forces. They have no mm-hmm. idea that British airplanes are arriving in the Shannon. They have no idea that Donald Trump's US Marines are refuelling in the Shannon. They have no idea that these economic and covert links are being established with European imperialists and world imperialists more broadly, which leads you to a narrative which suggests that that's being done for a reason. Because if people actually knew, and if that was actually publicised, and if that was actually given the correct correspondence it was supposed to be, then people would revolt. People People won't want that to happen. And it's now a very clever game for imperialists to play, and it's something that we... This is why we do what we do. We try to put that narrative out there. We try to talk to people, and we try to educate people that the projects that we're involved in right now do not tangibly interest you and they certainly do not into sorry tangibly interest your class and bringing that class divide into this is massive so you Mm -hmm. go and do something like be part of these european union adventures or part of these united nations adventures and i call them adventures because they don't realistically empower us and you start to realize with that class perspective that What am I doing here? I'm creating more wealth for a despotic European ruling class and a despotic national class. And what I need to do is to create more services and more viable investment opportunities for myself and for the working class more broadly so that we can, A, stay in the country and, B, build an an Ireland that we can be proud of and one that's been advocated throughout history, you know? Hope that answers your question.
2: (laughs) Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: I like it, it, it's something that I've kind of um, uh, struggled with vocalizing in the past as well because there's there's, there's this understanding of um, colonialism within the within the left um, or like even even what I would call left lib um, about like what are colonial nations, what aren't. and Ireland is very rarely mentioned. and I think this is due to a very kind of like unique position that Ireland is in. Um, I've talked to some uh, South African friends, uh, Ian Mabelli, a friend of the show, about uh, similar situations where before the end of apartheid, you were seeing something very similar in South Africa where uh, they were post-colonial nations like Ireland, but they were being kind of let into, for lack of a better term, club white, that they are being treated while still being post-colonial, while still being, having that the legacy of all those like infrastructure there, they were being treated markedly different from say Nigeria or India or Indonesia, because there was, there's something there. However, the, the, according to South African people, it it does sound like the trajectory for South Africa has shifted ever since the end of apartheid. And they're now kind of being pushed more out to the periphery um, than they were previously. Like they were kind of being treated as like second Australia. Uh, beforehand, but oh no, there's yeah. two of them
2: now <laughs> Fuck.
0: um but it is like it's very I've often been very kind of shy to talk about Ireland as a colonial nation, say in the face of someone who's talking about Palestine being like yeah that that seems a bit more uh, uh, horrifyingly tangible uh than the situation Ireland is facing, but it's the way you put it is very is very good,
1: yeah, I guess touching on that it kind of t- it kind of backs up my narrative that. Most of the international community stand in solidarity with Palestine because it's so visual. It's so military Mm. horrific. It is horrific what's happening in Palestine. But as you touched upon there, nobody puts Ireland in the same bracket. And we're not in the same bracket. It's not as horrific as that. But economically, it's quite similar. It's just a little bit more Mm. covert than what's happening in Israel and Palestine because there's no military presence, which is what I come back to, that the the British imperial game and I guess imperialism more broadly, apart from that Israel-Palestine, although there are other examples is a bit more clever now and is a bit less is a bit less willing to (laughs) really put their foot in the ground certainly since 2003 in iraq they've been much more careful to do something stupid so that you can ignite some sort of world kind of sympathy for national liberation and social liberation more broadly
2: yeah yeah i mean Okay. So. oh no i was just going to simply say like like that oh i don't know actually like that was that, (laughs) that was good Like, um, no, but it is like, I, I I think it is kind of just like, like piggybacking on the thing that Kieran was saying about, yeah, like, like, um, how those those relations can so quickly change if you're, like, in and out of the European project. And you saw that in 2008, like, which, like... I mean, in, like, I lived in, in Germany during that, and it was a very weird time to see just, like, the amount of just, like, disinformation that had, like, a racial tinge to it just to then justify austerity to it. And it's, like, within a European country, and it's just, like, oh, these fucking swarthy, you know, Southern Europeans just don't have their shit together. And that was, like, front-page news, and then there was always, like, the fake... Um, I don't know if this like became big news anywhere else, but there was a faked video of Janos Wojewołkis flipping off the camera, and yeah. someone edited that so that it looked like, oh, like you know, oh, we're gonna give Germany the finger. Then he flips off the camera, and Germans freaked out. They're like, can you believe these? You know, like like we're trying to help them through these austerity packages, which they weren't. Because... Goddamn ingrates! Exactly, but it literally came off as that. And I, I saw yeah. that, and then it was a comedian thing from Jan Böhmermann which is, if, uh, if you don't know who he is, that's a good thing. But um, well, he's going to be the new leader of uh, the SPD. SPD. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he, um, he, he was, it was really weird because he was trying to like, make Giannis and like, Greece look badass for then telling Germany to fuck off, which was nice. But it ultimately then become, became used as a right-wing propaganda tool to then justify austerity. And I saw this clip, no joke, reused last year with the middle finger after then it came out that it was already fake. And Tagesschau, which is like the, the 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 state news sort of thing in Germany, were the ones who used it. It wasn't like it was like a right wing paper. It was the normal national news that you hear at eight o'clock. Equivalent to BBC. Exactly, basically. yeah. And they and they were using that because there were, you know, oh, trouble in Greece with the elections that then were coming up, and it was just really like apparent. Like now everyone thinks that they're like, oh, okay, everything's hunky dory and back to normal because like the furthest right wing party that isn't a neo Nazi party has taken control, and Europe likes that, but, you know, ruffle the feathers of them one more time and neglect socialists, no matter how far left they are or not, oh, uh, you you fucking, like, better believe yourself these, like, ridiculous, like, you know, extremely racist points are going to start coming out yeah. of the woodwork again.
1: Well, I think that kind of sums up the European project more broadly. I mean, you kind of touch upon the racial tinge there. I mean, it's the same with the entire European project. So this is the classic example I love to give, is how, how, in, how enraged, how inflamed... And how dow- downright appalled were people when Donald Trump started talking about building a wall between the US and Mexico, when actually the European Union has been doing that for years. It has a wall between Turkey and its borders to mm-hmm. keep out migrants and to keep out immigrants who are fleeing their yeah, conditions. conservatives
2: which- in the U.S. love that point. Conserv- like, They're like, oh, well, you know, Europeans are going to talk shit about this, but you guys have a wall. You have a wall in between, you know, that little part of Spain that then is in Africa. And, uh, you know, you have a wall between Greece and Turkey and whatever other borders that then that they share with, with their neighbors. Like, Europe Dude, does it. Why yeah. can't we? And it's like, those borders are bad. Like, those are horrible fucking, like, those are just literally like barriers of genocide Correct. for... Yeah. Yeah, you know. I mean, like the border, the border on
0: Bulgaria and Greece, like or Bulgaria and uh, Turkey on Thrace, like is literally like uh, monitored by and encouraged to be monitored by
1: like right wing you neo know, Nazi yeah, militias. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and privatized security firms more broadly, which Woo! have the yeah. have the you know the, the tangible interest of, of literally putting people in prison because it makes money. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of system we live in. That's the kind of world we live in where. Human life doesn't matter as long as it makes you a buck. You know, that's that, that's what you're told to believe. And whether you take that on or not, whether you perceive that to be true, whether you actually clock into that, it, it's actually more dangerous if you don't clock into it because then you just do all the norms, like put somebody in prison for the sake of it, you know? But why is that border there? Why is that border, as you t- touch upon, it's a horrendous thing to have. Why is it there? It's literally to keep people who are being savaged by war-torn Western imperialism from getting in. And why are they not allowed in? Because it's not profitable labor. They have no profitable... Yeah. They have no profitable...
0: Mm. something
1: to give they you know they don't have skilled labor they don't have some sort of we talked about that the working class is more technology developed and more advanced than it ever has been but these people don't fit into that so project europe puts up the wall it says we can't afford to keep you but at the same time you'll get nations who have no tangible link certainly don't border getting in for free all the time so look at israel israel isn't a member of the european union but it gets it Mm gets um lax um visa immigrations the us get lax visa immigrations why because they're big nations with lots of Lots of potential. I mean, I don't want to use the term more broadly, but you know, they have more opportunity to progress. They have more opportunity for education, and that's why the that's why there's such a disparity in the European Union. And that's why we need to really break the narrative that European Union is for peace and democracy. Because if it was for peace and democracy, these walls wouldn't exist, and certainly they wouldn't oh, yeah. be sending out projects to literally butcher states on its borders. You know?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, even like going like perfectly into that is that how now that border and the 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 You know, the accumulation of refugees in Turkey have been used as a bargaining chip with Turkey in relations with Germany, particularly because Germany was the big country that then, you know, refugees, um, you know, migrated to because uh, Germany, to be fair, like was doing the the good and right thing and they didn't they didn't handle the situation well at all because it is Germany (laughs) and um, but you know yeah like Erdogan whenever there's like a a dispute between Germany and Turkey Erdogan always holds that up of like we're going to send refugees into your country you know we know you do not want that and Germany will immediately then I mean like one of the biggest things comes into like Kurdish activists who are then being um, like specifically like in like Bavaria that the uh, the Bavarian state has taken a very hard line that is very pro Erdogan in, um, uh, 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 you know, getting people for even like posting like Facebook stuff because this is what mm-hmm. the, the Erdogan regime wants is a crackdown on quote unquote terrorism. But then the United, St- uh, not sorry, not the United States, uh, uh, Germany. Can you know send whatever fucking you know tanks and and assault weapons to Turkey so that they can you know invade the north of Syria and create you know their glorious Neo Ottoman fucking ethno state that they're trying to do in their projects. So it is like again like and it, this is why I think it is so hard to then explain this modern phenomenon of then imperialism and how it works in the you know 21st century. You, you perfectly put the point that financialization is the new colonialism. And it's, you cannot put your finger on that and see, like, the actual violent mechanisms of that until you start having to, like, like you know, either experience it or, like, really take your time trying to then, like, see how these – because you end up kind of sounding, like, conspiratorial if you just, like, you know, start talking to an average person about this. And, like, it is – I can then understand how people kind of get into that conspiratorial mindset because they just, if they're bombarded with so much at one time. And that's then like the reaction that then that you can like automatically come to like there has to be some like bigger power that then is like controlling all this because capital in the nature of capitalism is like just kind of sold to you as being the norm. And you kind of don't have this mechanism of understanding like that. Oh, well, this is like 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 there isn't some, like, Illuminati. This is just capitalism. This is just the the nature of, of how yeah. history progresses through this. And, yeah, I think you had it uh, beautifully put that the only way then to, you know, revolt against that is then through these collective movements. Now, they have to build upon one another and how this is... I mean, yeah, Ireland is the example that we're talking about right now for, for this episode, but that has to... Like, that 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 is a format that can also be implemented... I would say in most communities, because you can then take the individual struggles of what you have and the collective action solve these things better than just, yeah, like electoralism is shit because it only will, like you said, only is to garner then support for then a party, then who's trying to like, you know, please the ruling class. And we don't have any skin in the game in that we have ourselves and our struggles and we Hmm. can relate to those you know mechanisms of power that like like you like kieran always mentions democracy in the workplace and stuff like that like those are things that then are revolts that then we can do that we actually have like you know like that we can actually touch and that we're a part of and that they're a part of our daily you know uh uh uh, um, lives like electoralism doesn't offer that in any in any sense whatsoever
1: yeah i guess touching upon that you've brought up a really good point there which i think is the struggle for leftists more broadly is that we are often seen as conspiratorial. And we're often seen, yeah. we're often projected certainly as mad men and people are mad women depending on your gender but or transgender, whatever. But you are seen as some people who are like, you know, some conspirator It's like, it's you know, a lot of people say to me, about, well, I, I bet you don't believe that there was a man on the moon because you're a leftist. I, I get that quite <laughs> a lot. I've heard that quite a lot. It was like, no, I, I'm sure that's not that. That's that's absolute nonsense. What we really need to... Update, and then you
2: break down about how the Soviet Union had a better...
1: <laughs> that, so is, that is that is that is that is what I get into. But hey, the Soviet Union was <laughs> the space race. Let's talk about that. But no, no, more broadly, like, to, to bring the point to its conclusion, is that we really need to be very careful that we're putting out quantitative data and quantitative examples which show what we're talking about so you stop taking it out of ideas you start taking about an idealist perception of the world and start putting a material focus on this is why this is happening and this is how it affects us so you talk about something like democracy in the workplace this is the great example i used to sort of debunk all this and to sort of really start getting the cogs turning in people's minds about a leftist perspective is you can criticize let's use let's use iron as an example but it happens anywhere in the world you can criticize leo varadkar all you want in the, in the state building. You can criticise Boris Johnson all you want, and you can criticise Donald Trump all you want, but if you criticise your boss in the morning, you'll get fired. That's just the simple reality of how capitalism works. And it's about getting that cog, that first quantitative step that says, yeah, the economics matter in a society. That's the first step. So we really need to be making sure that we're breaking away from what you talk about, the sort of woke comrades and the sort of conspiratorial kind of nonsense, which Mixes look fucking crazy, you know? There is a kind of... I don't, we are collective organisations, but there is an individual ownership for the collective movement, every person of the individual of that collective movement, to really know their shit. And I mean that in the in the best way possible, because obviously everyone's got a different kind of perspective on things, but we need to make sure that we're not just coming out with things that are absolutely farcical to sort of fuel this narrative that leftists are mental and their image of the world is not actually tangible, when actually it's real. And you get those, like as I say, that little step I said little real examples in the person that you're talking to their life to give them that working class perspective I and mean, give them that, that left wing perspective that I can actually take ownership of their own future rather than just talk about men on the moon for example to give that other <laughs> example you know
2: we are all we all I mean I don't know about you guys but uh, Lyndon LaRouche is definitely my uh, my favourite leftist
1: uh, yeah yeah
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, it, it does kind of bring to
0: the point of like I can't remember who said this quote originally but it was it's a it, 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 uh, it was a good quote, which was, um, "Oh, um, conspiracy theories is like socialism for idiots. Like, it's you, you've you've figured out that there is something beyond your control, that there is another force that seems kind of almost alien to you, dictating your lives, and you can't quite pinpoint what that is. So clearly, it's Jewish lizards." Yeah. Because it because because I, I a little pushback because. There is a conspiracy. It's just that it's not necessarily like it's not a group of people who meet up every uh, you know every second Sunday of the month, being like, "All right, lads,
2: let's let's plan the capitalism this week." <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it, it's
0: more well, like that
2: would mean great- that capitalism is a planned economy. Then, oh, you know,
1: very the good. F- I was going to say that bit. <laughs> That's funny.
2: <laughs> oh god,
1: That's was like, uh, No, I thought you were going to say
0: it's like, oh wait, they meet up somewhere every Sunday. Let's go. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like it is this kind of situation that like no, you just have to explain to people that the the real the real horror is that like when all these interests just align, mm-hmm. this is just what happens with the system, and you let it run wild in your like um, fucking Sims sandbox that is <laughs> the world. Unfortunately, yeah,
2: yeah. Well, it really like I mean, like it is inherently like taught to you is just like that. This is just like the rationale of like just people in general. You know that that cap the capitalist logic is you know, normal every day, like just your, the way that you should just go about your life. And that's why, I mean, like the idea then of, of capitalism or just like capitalist economics dealing in the idea of like rationality is absolutely hilarious because like, uh, Market transactions are incredibly irrational, yeah, <laughs> especially when you see, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, uh, uh I mean, like financial and real estate markets are probably the, the most chaotic fucking thing. Or like, you know, the biggest example is like Bitcoin, and like all that falls into the exact same categorization as all those other just fucking Ponzi scheme financialization things. It's just that they're like now you yourself can do it, and it's not. There's no like real rhyme or reason for it. It's just that you're you're gambling. And if gambling then is completely logical to you, which I guess there maybe is like a mathematical way of solving it, but still nonetheless, like you're participating in this for, for kind of like irrational reasons of just like, I may get lucky. I don't know what then, like I can't predict the wins of this, but you know, I'm, I'm here to, to, you know, make money and, and, and that's the solid thing to do. And that's, that, that's a horrible way of looking at the world. Yeah.
0: You know, yeah, it is. Yeah. There, there's this kind of also this, um, uh, I, you just reminded me of something that happens in like startup culture quite a bit, which I encounter quite a bit in Ireland.
2: We have to join the church that is your startup, and
0: <laughs> um, no, but like the the whole kind of like false control, like false cooperative, almost of like we'll give you shares in the company, and if you work hard, the company will do well, and therefore you will get money. I was like, you are in control. I was like, not really. I don't have any control over, say, like what my hours are, what I get paid, how we work, what we work on, and also the whole thing of me working hard. Getting money, I thought that was what a wage was. (laughs) Can we not go back to that? Does have a a better wage? All right, I say that we do
2: the Trotsky's position where we where we um, infiltrate all those startups. And, and then, split them all. Uh, split them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then actually, then we do the typical Trotsky thing of then just like buying into it. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a hot take there, boy. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> all right. Um, I think. We, I, I mean, I said we put Trotskyism on the blockchain. Yeah, Trotskyism on the blockchain. Oh, that, that exists. Um,
1: anything final you want to ask? I mean, in. Oh uh,
2: yeah. Uh, uh, do you have anything to shout out? <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, I guess Radical Reflections I well, I'll I'll sort of just answer that. So um yeah, I run the I, I run a podcast, Radical Reflections. You can find that at twitter dot com forward slash rad reflections. We're also on patreon.com forward slash radical reflections if you feel like supporting us and you like what we're doing when you check it out. More broadly, I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me on. This is the first time I've been invited on to another podcast, and it's been great to talk to both of you. I'm sure it's, it's been a great experience and a lot of fun, and I'm hoping we can maybe do it again sometime or I could bring you on the show, you know, all those kind of things that build the collective movement online, which is kind of what the podcast movement is, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know that Kieran and I are definitely open for both of those. So, yeah, I mean, I had... a. Uh, uh... Uh, I hope that I can speak for Kieran as well on this, but I had a, a wonderful time speaking with you. I, I learned a lot about a country that I do not know a lot about because, unlike Kieran, as yeah. you can clearly tell through my voice, I am not from Ireland. And it really, um, like, I, I've always kind of, like, yeah, like I said, like Ireland's always been that country that then has been forgotten about after 2008. And it was really uh, nice not only to have a perspective on it, but a, a, a radical left perspective that isn't, I mean, yeah, there is a lot of doom and gloom in it, but that then is like, hey, yeah, like, like there is, like, we can piece this together, but it can only be through you know. I mean, it can be, it can be through 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 other means, obviously, but <clears throat> socialism has the most to offer. So maybe yeah. we should give this a try.
1: Yeah, just to finally like touch on that. Like we've done a, a couple of good episodes with Lasser Yarg and the Connolly Youth Movement more broadly. They're new organizations, I guess, in in Ireland who are really taking the approach that I am talking about very seriously. They're creating mm-hmm. community led organizations that are run. Through the community, with the community, and for the community. And like CYM have literally occupied a building in Cork to protest against the housing crisis for a couple of years now. And they're doing that under the very nose of the state and under state repression, which is great that they're continuing to do that. Lasser Yarg have a magazine there, they've been very active in the green spaces campaign in Glass mullen and belfast and there is a lot of hope in ireland there's a lot of good movements and there are a lot of people taking the right approach in ireland we need to continue to support them we need to continue to work with them and we can need to just continue work towards a better ireland more broadly and a better europe and a better world subsequent because of that the national struggle has an international outlook under marxism and i advocate for that every day that what we do in ireland can have a tangible effect on the international community as well and create a little bit of hope which is kind of why i do radical reflections it's kind of why i talk to you people it's kind of why i work towards i do and kind of why i more broadly, work towards socialism, you know? I Like, I strongly
0: recommend David's podcast, Tronical Reflections. I binged it very quickly. Uh, nice and uh, nice not only from like the perspective of being an Irish person, and it's very hard to find out what's going on in Ireland once you leave, even from, like, top-level, what's happening in the doll perspective, never mind what's happening in, like, my very particular niche of interest in politics. It was a great podcast to listen to, really inspiring stuff, really interesting stuff, uh, strongly recommend appreciate it thank you
2: <laughs> yeah all right on uh, and I'm gonna just yeah close the podcast by okay, saying okay cool yeah you do that <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah I'm just gonna close the podcast by saying that Maria Walsh MEP for Finnegill was right we are all just 90s kids and uh, play some sad Irish rap thank you very much <laughs> thank you <laughs>
3: Are addicted to drugs. Whoop, whoop. He doesn't know his mother's money to thugs. He's not an alcoholic. He isn't depressed, and he's gonna break a lot of hearts when he hangs himself. Whoop. Disappointing his wife He wasn't called a fucking knacker Every day of his life He never lied to his children They're better off if he leaves Cause what he has is a problem Not a fucking disease He doesn't think when he's drinking He doesn't drink to forget He doesn't drink to remember the smell a drink on a breath He's middle class and his wife. He has no cause for complaining He wasn't sexually assaulted By those fellas at training Sonny's not committing that, he's just doing him a favor. Woo! Sonny, oh, sonny, don't go hanging yourself. Woo! Woo! Sonny, oh, sonny, don't go hanging yourself. Woo! suck a fucking cock when he has Fanny on tap. She's not addicted to drink. She's not addicted to drink. She's not addicted to sinking pints till her skin starts to stink. He's not as broke as a promise or the money he's owing. Sonny doesn't need a fucking job where it's going. He's not in love with the seven year old from two houses down. And no one thinks she'll be safer if Sonny hangs or he jones. He thinks it's hard to be a burden when you're so leave a beautiful corpse With gel in your heel. He's not as strong as the cancel Dancing inside of her chest And he's gonna break a lot of hearts When he hangs himself Sonny, oh sonny Don't go hanging yourself Sonny, oh sonny Don't go hanging yourself Woo! But you've to hold on to hope You are important to someone, Sonny So put down the rope